theyeshiva.net. We all woke up this morning to a uh, wonderland, the world bedecked with white. But I know that the view from within your home is easier to uh, appreciate and celebrate than making the trek down here through this uh, slope and down this path (laughs) into our tent. So everyone who's here, I really appreciate it. Thank you for gracing us and uh, for the effort it took to be here with us to learn this morning. So welcome to everybody. And whoever is listening online, we have a big snow here in uh, New York. We had a big, beautiful snow here. So I want to explore with you today a uh, small but seemingly very disturbing scene in Parshas Vayetze. It's the opening of the 30th chapter of Bereshis, chapter 30 of Genesis. And it's only two verses, but they demand a profound, I think a profound explanation. The background of the story is that Yaakov was deceived into marrying Leah. He worked seven years to marry Rachel, but at the last moment we all know there was a switch and he marries Leah. And as the Torah says, that Leah yearning for her husband's affection, she names all of her first four children with names that represent this hope. Reuven and Shimon and Levi and Yehuda, and then even some later children. Rachel, his first and beloved choice, is infertile. As the Torah says, Rachel Akara, she's barren, she can't have any children. Her older sister already gave birth to four children. Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, and Rachel, her sister, was waiting for her first. The opening of chapter 30 states these words, Parshas Vayetzi, the beginning of Perik Lamed, and I'm going to quote. Vateri Rachel Rachel saw that she had not bore any children to Yaakov. Vatekani Rachel Bachaisa. Rachel envied her sister. So she says to her husband Yaakov, give me children. If not, I am dead. And Yaakov became angry with Rachel. And he says, Am I, instead of God, Am I a substitute for God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And that's the end of that conversation. Later we will see that the Torah says, much later, this is verse 22 in chapter 30, Vayisker Elakim Esrachel, God, Hashem, remembered Rachel. He listened to her and he opened her womb and she gave birth ultimately to two sons, Yosef and 
Binyamin. What I want to discuss is Yaakov's response to Rachel. At first glance, and even at second glance, and third glance, it seems insensitive. It also seems very uncharacteristic of their bond. We know throughout the whole story, the Torah makes sure to emphasize again and yet again and yet again how deeply Yaakov felt for Rachel. It's the first marriage in the Torah where one sees such a powerful expression of affection. Adam and Chava is a match made in heaven, quite literally. We don't know about Noyach and his wife. Avram and Sarah we meet only after they're married already. We don't meet them before. Yitzchak loves Rivka after the wedding. Yaakov, it says, when he comes to the well in Charon and he sees Rachel, he's immediately overtaken by emotion. He embraces her, he kisses her, he weeps. It says he loves her, he cherishes her. He wants to work seven years for her. Later when he's deceived and marries Leah, but later marries Rachel also, it says, He loves also Rachel. He loves Leah, but he loves also Rachel, but much more than Leah. To the point, Hashem saw that Leah was loathed. Besides being such an insensitive response, it seems very uncharacteristic of their relationship. Yaakov cherished Rachel, he labored for seven years to gain her hand in marriage. That was the deal he made with his father Lavan. The Torah states not once, not twice, but three times that Yaakov loved Rachel. And as I said, no other marriage in the whole Torah merits such a description. In fact, many, many decades later, right before his own passing, in Parshas Vayechi, Yaakov would speak to Rachel's oldest son, Yosef. And what would he say? When I returned from Padan Aram, when I returned from Choron, southern Turkey, to back to uh, Eretz Yisrael, Mesa Alai Rachel. Rachel died on me. He didn't say Mesa Rachel. Mesa Alai Rachel. Rachel died on me, as the Gemara says. Ein Isha Mesa Elalabayla. The effect of the passing of a spouse is left on nobody like the husband. Or as the Gemara says, For everything in life there is a substitute besides losing the wife of his youth. So he says, Rachel died on me. He never forgot her and he never forgot their special loving relationship. Yet, when his beloved life partner expresses her agony, her pain, her misery over being childless. When she says, give me children, if not, I feel lifeless, I'm dead. We would expect empathy. We would expect uh, an expression of compassion, perhaps prayer. Yitzchak and Rivka pray together for children. But instead, he responds in rage, Vayichar Af Yaakov, which literally translated means his wrath burnt or his anger burnt against Rachel. He got angry at Rachel, saying, Am I instead of God? The pain of Rachel, as the pain of a woman who wants to have a child but cannot, is one of the deepest pains in the world. And Rachel compares it to death. She is the one who says, If I don't have children, Mesa Naichi, I'm dead. 
So how could her husband be so insensitive to her plight? And again, this would be with any person, even a stranger, especially the woman of his dreams, quite literally. We know, everybody knows, any experienced husband, (laughs) any loving husband, knows that even in a good day, when things are going well, when his wife conveys an emotion about something that's eating up on her, something that's sitting, sitting in her chest, sitting in her stomach, the last thing you do is get angry. Right? Am I right? Uh-huh. And that's even in the best of days with a beautiful snow and the sun shining, which makes the trees literally look bedecked in gold. And some men need some training not to get upset about people's emotions. Just because somebody is feeling down, it's not a personal accusation against them. It's hard for some people. They think when their spouse is upset, it means he's a bad husband, he's lousy, he's being accused, and he becomes defensive, and he tries to solve the problem, and he tries to get rid of the emotion. (laughs) Any recognition? But... uh, Okay, so take some training to understand that you have to carve out space in your heart for people's emotions. Let them feel you don't have to get defensive. It's not a blame. Even if it's about you, very often it's not about you. And even if it's mamish about you, there are different ways of dealing with it. What she wants more than everything else is an attentive ear and a receptive heart. And that itself makes a person feel much better. It's much of what a good marriage is about. It's the stuff of which a good marriage is built and constructed. Certainly, if she's expressing pain over a real wound, if there is deep grief over something that is so deeply painful, the response seems baffling and disturbing. And I want to present today four approaches to this. One comes from the Medrash. The second one comes from a medieval Jewish philosopher. The third one comes from a, uh, some, a uh, the Munkacherov who lived right before the war. And the fourth comes from the Ramban and some of the Hasidic masters. Let's start off with the Medrash. The Medrash Rabbah and the Medrash always fills in the gaps because the texts, the texts of Chumash are often so brief and so concise. A lot is left for the imagination, especially in terms of emotions. So the Medrash is like the harmony that fills up and allows the music, the song of the text to resonate in full splendor. So the Medrash Rabbah Vayetze Lamed says, and I quote, Vayichar af Yaakov berachel. Yaakov got angry at Rachel and he says, Am I in lieu of God? What do I look like? God. Says the Medrash, Oma loy HaKadosh Baruch. Hashem actually responded to Yaakov about this. And when the Medrash says he responded to Yaakov, does it mean that Yaakov actually had a conversation with Hashem about this? Or does the Medrash mean that there was an inner voice, the inner voice of the soul, the inner voice of the Chelek HaLekah within Yaakov that spoke back to him. Hashem speaks to him and says, Kach oinim es Extraordinary words. Yaakov, 
This is how you respond to people who are hurting, to people who have been crushed. Chayecha, I swear, shebanecha asidim lamed lifnei bna, that your your sons, your sons from Leah, will stand and prostrate themselves in front of her son. And what the Medrash is referring to is that idea that we'll always see throughout the Torah, what goes around, comes around. Years later, Rachel's son, Yosef, would become the prime minister of Egypt. And all of Leah's sons would come to Egypt and prostrate themselves before him, pleading for food and grain to take home to their starving family. And when their father, Yaakov, passes away and they're afraid Yosef will take revenge for what they have done to him, they're going to come to him to ask him for forgiveness and offer themselves as slaves. What is his response to them? When they are afraid he's going to take revenge after Yaakov passed away and they want to become his slaves, he says three words. It's the same words that Yaakov told his mother many years ago. Vayoymer Aleihem. Yosef, Yosef says to his brothers in Parshas Vayechi, this is Genesis chapter 50, Al-Tiro, don't be afraid. Ki hasachas Eloikim Oni? Do you think I stand in place of God? You got the wrong person. Do not be afraid. So when Yaakov tells Rachel, I am not God, I cannot help you in this situation. The Medrash says, Hashem tells Yaakov, this is not how you respond. You're emotionally estranging yourself from a woman crying for a child. Somehow this is linked to a future event when Rachel's son makes this very statement that he is not Hashem to lay his children who offer themselves as slaves in lieu of his forgiveness. The Ramban, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman, Nachmanides, who lived in Spain, in the 13th century, and is one of the greatest sages, rabbis, physicians, leaders, and Torah commentators, says, Toma, I am astounded. Why did he get angry? Why did he say, am I instead of God? Hashem listens to tzaddikim. The commentators say that Yaakov told her, what do you want from me? My father didn't have children. Yitzchak never had children, so he prayed together with Rivka. But I already have children from Leah. Says the Ramban, So what? Do tzaddikim not pray for other people? In the Sefer Malachim Aleph, Kings 1, chapter 21, and Malachim Beis, chapter 16, Eliyahu, Anavi, and Elisha are praying to Hashem for women, not only their wives, but women who are complete strangers, what he calls Nashim Nachiz, and they're praying for them, and they achieve success, and these women have children. What type of response is this? I have children. This is not my business. And the Ramban says, It seems that because of this, the rabbis um, I don't know, seized him, or, or felt critical about this. As the Medrash says, Hashem says, this is not how you respond to people who are hurting. And your children from Leah are going to stand and beg her child to forgive them. This is one perspective. There's a very different perspective, and quite a fascinating one, which comes from one of the outstanding philosophers 
of Spanish Jewry. His name was Rabbi Yitzchak Arama. Rabbi Yitzchak Arama was a Jew. He was born in 1420. He passed away around 1494, shortly after Spanish Jewry was expelled from Spain on Tisha B'Av 1492. He was one of the hundreds of thousands of Jews who was forced to leave his country. Rabbi Yitzchak Arama left Spain. He settled in Naples, in Italy, where he passed away just two years later in 1494. He authored a sefer called Akedas Yitzchak. His name was Yitzchak, Yitzchak Arama. Akedas Yitzchak, of course, means the binding of Yitzchak. It's a lengthy, complicated, and philosophical commentary on the Torah. Very homiletic in style. And he's frequently known as the Baal HaAkedah, which means the author of the Akedah because of his commentary, his name Akedah Yitzchak. In his commentary on Vayetze, he has quite an interesting take on the story. And I'm going to quote what Akedah Yitzchak says in Bereshis, section 9 of his commentary. He says that the original woman, Chava, had two names. The first name was not Chava. The first name she is given in Torah is Isha. After Adam is created and Chava is created, created together and then separated, the Torah says, therefore, the proper name for her is Isha. Why Isha? Ki me'ish lukachazois. Because she's just separated from Ish. Men and women, according to the sages, based on Beratius, are created together like, maybe like Siamese twins. And then there is a surgical decoupling, what's called in the Syria, the separation, after Adam is put to sleep. And they're now separated and they each become an independent, complete, self-sustaining organism. Now they have to connect face-to-face, voluntarily, rather than just being connected naturally from creation. And there her name becomes Isha. Later, much later, Adam is going to give her the name Chava. And he says why? Because she is Aim Kol Chai. She is the mother of every living child. She is the progenitor of all of civilization. She gives birth to Cain. She gives birth to Hevel. Later she'll give birth to their third child, Shes. And therefore he calls her Chava Aim Kol Chai from the word Chai. She is responsible for the reproductive for the reproduction and continuum of continued continuity of humanity, of human civilization. Says the Akedah. These two names are not just two names. They represent almost two identities. He says the first level of Isha is, she's not like Ish. There's a man and there's a woman. Two genders, but the kamayu tuchalahav in bedivrei seichel the chasidus kamayish also on avias the kamitzit kaniyus on avias. Two equals, different as we say, but equal. There is a man and there is a woman. He says hasheni. The second is an identity that belongs only to her. Man shares nothing of that, and that is inyan ha'ilada. The fact that she can bring a child into the world. Her organism is created to become a vessel for the child. Umudbas, it's, it's embedded genetically with the ability for birth, vegidil habonim, and nursing children and raising children. Kashayoyra la shem chava, kashayi haisa, aim kol chai.
So the Akedah says that's why there's two names in Bereshis. The woman is the feminine word for Ish. Ish is masculine, and Ish is feminine, but it's exactly the same words. And as the Gemara says in Saita 17, it's Ish, Aleph Shin, which is fire. This has the Yud of Hashem's name, and Isha has the He of Hashem's name, which is why we say Ish v'Isha Zachu, Shechina Shruya B'neim, when the man and the woman merit, or as another interpretation, when the man and the mer- woman are Zachu, they are refined, as in Zach, Shem and Zayi Zach, Shechina Shruya B'neim, the Yud and the He come together in their home, in their abode, in their domain, and the Divine Presence dwells there. So therefore she is named Isha, because they were one, and then they were separated into two. The second name, Chava, is the mother of all life. Ask Stakeda, why do you need two names? Why two names? Adam, by the way, is a name that includes both of them. As the Torah says, he called Vayikra Shmam Adam. Adam means the first human being, which was a composite of two. We don't have another name for Adam. (laughs) We have Ish. Adam includes both. But Chava gets two names. So the Akedah says, why is this? So that's what he says, to elaborate, that every woman has two aspects. The first is, she is a woman, she is a self-contained human being, just like a man. She's an Isha, he's an Ish, she's an Isha. And he says she's capable of extraordinary accomplishments. He said, take a look at all the great prophets the Nevi'ahs, the female prophets, the Tzitkaniyahs, the great righteous people, she is capable of any accomplishment that man is capable of, as he says, she can achieve and grow in great intellectual, uh, uh, reach great intellectual heights and great heights of spirituality and piety. And this is all in her own right, as he says, she can per, per, um, she can develop or attain profound understanding and wisdom. She can cultivate a life of greatness, goodness, piety, and even prophecy, which means intuition and receptiveness of God's energy, just like any man. This is her name, because that's what she is. She's an Isha. In addition to this, she was given a whole new identity. She has the role of Chav, the extraordinary ability to conceive develop and give birth and raise children, which makes her the progenitor of humanity, the mother of life. If a woman, says the Akkad, is unable for whatever reason to have children, she may not be able to fulfill the task of motherhood, the task of Chava. But does this in any way diminish her primary identity as a self-contained human being whose value and identity is completely predicated on her own life and deeds? And it may be surprising to some because Rabbi Yitzhak Arama was writing this in the 1400s, in the 15th century, which was a very different milieu than the 21st century. But these are his precise words. To say it in Hebrew as he says... In that sense of Isha, she's like a male. Everyone knows. If a man is not married, a man cannot, he says a man cannot have children. He's not considered naught, nothing, valueless. That's not fair to say. And he quotes from the Sefer Yeshayahu, Chapter 56, Isaiah 56, Al Yoimar Hasaris Heinani Eitz Yavesh. 
The one who doesn't have children should not say, I'm a dry a tree, a dead tree with no purpose. Don't say that your life is worthless and valueless. This, according to Akeda, Akeda, is why Yaakov was angry with Rachel. He felt that she succumbed to the notion that her entire value and self-worth came from Chava, not from Isha. By defining herself as dead due to her infertility, Yaakov felt she was denying herself, her role as a human being who can fulfill her destiny and achieve the purpose of her life even, even if in fact she lacks, and it's a very painful fact that she lacks, the ability to bear biological children. So therefore, according to Rabbi Yitzhak Arama, it's true that for Rachel, not to bear children was very painful. And there are a few things that are as rewarding, meaningful, and life-enhancing. But Yaakov said to Rachel, don't call yourself dead. You're not doing yourself justice. This is not true. You can't strip yourself from your value and dignity, even if you're lacking this great blessing, and it causes you deep pain. And according to him, this is why Yaakov gets upset. As I told you, when I saw this the first time, I was quite fascinated. Fascinating. What Yabitzek Arama is protesting here is that a woman equates her identity with her children. He says, that's not the case. That's an extraordinary thing, but it's not the same identity. And therefore, when Rachel says, without them, I'm dead, Yaakov gets very upset. He feels that there is something wrong about this. The rest I will leave for your imagination to develop this idea in your mind, but I think it has a lot of ramifications and a lot of consequences how we look at ourselves, how others look at us, and especially even including those blessed with children, how they define themselves vis-a-vis their children. I remember I was once, I once finished a lecture and a woman came over to me and she said, I would like to speak to you for a few moments. So how can I help you? She says, my children are miserable. How can I make my children happy? So I told her, I don't know. I don't know how you can make your children happy. I'm not sure anybody can make their children happy. I think the only one you can make happy is maybe yourself. And if you're happy, so there'll be a happy vibe in the house. I think they'll learn from it. So she says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm a lost case. I have forgiven. I have given up all hope on me ever being happy. I will be miserable for the rest of my life. But I'm hoping and praying maybe my children can be happy. I said, let me give you my prediction. Your children will grow up to be miserable, but they will be hoping and praying that their children will be happy because that is what you're going to bequeath to them. This will be your legacy to them. I am miserable, but you will be happy. We do not help our children by losing our identity and not existing for them. It doesn't make children happier when they don't have fathers and mothers who are human beings. To the contrary, 
I believe what the Akedah is really indicating is that it's the exact opposite. The Isha and the Chava don't compete. It's the Isha that allows the Chava to be able to be what Chava is without usurping what Isha is. So this is not only a commentary for Rachel in that situation, who unfortunately was going through this difficulty and this profoundly agonizing and painful reality, but he's really giving a very powerful commentary. And as I said, remember this is written in the 1400s by a Jew living in Spain, Rabbi Yitzchak Harama the Baal HaKedah. I go over to a third interpretation that I saw in a sefer called Ois Chayim V'Shalem by the Munkat Rebbe. His name was Rabbi Chayim Elazar Shapiro. He passed away before the war in 19... Uh, right before Shavuos, 1936. He's known as the famous Rebbe and Rav of Munkach, known with the Sfarim Minchas Elazar and other uh, writings of the Munkach. And he was one of the great uh, poiskim and rabbis and leaders in pre-war Eastern Europe. He has a commentary on Chumash called Ois Chayim V'Shalom. And one of his explanations, after he brings other explanations, the Ramban, and he's not satisfied with anybody, he offers two. His second explanation is very interesting. He says, Yaakov didn't lose himself at Rachel. Yaakov didn't lose himself at all. What happened was, Yaakov got angry at her because he felt that the pain, when a person is in pain, that pain is not a mistake. When a person is in pain, for whatever reason, people sometimes feel guilty that they're in pain. They feel that uh, if they would have more emuna, they wouldn't be in pain. They would just smile all the time and say, this is wonderful, <laughs> right? I've never felt better. Now, some people are saintly, and all of life is just experienced as one perpetual relationship with God. They really feel no pain. You have the story of Reb Zushav Anapoli. Reb Zushav Anapoli was a pauper. He was beyond poor. And uh, somebody once came to them as Richard Magid, and he said, how do you uh, bless God? How do you thank God when you're having difficulties in life? So he said, go to the Bzusha of Anapoli. So he goes to the Bzusha, and he's there for three days. The house had nothing. And after three days, the Bzusha turns to his guest and says, I'm very happy to have you here. But if the, you come for a purpose, can I help you? He says, yeah, your teacher sent me to you, the Magad. He says, why did he send you to me? said, I asked him how you could thank God in difficult situations. The Mishnah says in Brachas, Chayev Adam Levarech Alara, Shem Levarech you should thank God for everything in life. So I came, he said, I should come to you. He says, I think you misunderstood what he said. There's a mistake. You probably didn't hear what he said. He said a different name. Said, Why? He says, me, how would I know? I never had a bad day in my life. He says, You got the wrong guy. I'm not a good, I'm not a good teacher for you. Reb Zusha, for him the definition of life was intimacy with God. That was the definition of life. And that he had every moment. They say a story that once he was in Shul Erev Shabbos and uh, somebody came to him and said, you know, it's Rahmanas, uh, your wife and your children and this. You know, well, how do you, uh, how do you deal with it? He says, Taka, I feel very bad for my wife and my children. He says, I'll tell you why. I, I rely on God, so I have no problems, but they never have to rely on me. <laughs> and I'm not, the, I'm not the greatest provider. So somebody gave him a lot of money, 50 ruble, 100 ruble, to, to, to have some food for Shabbos. 
So Bjursi, he just saw the world in a certain way. He was a, a very saintly man. So we, he, uh, he, put the, he, he had to go out a little bit and he was doing the chumash, my vesedra. So he put the money in the chumash, in the shul. And he had to go out. So this person says, don't leave the money there. Somebody can take it. He says, who's going to take it? He says, you never know. There's ganovim, there are thieves. They take money. He says, no worries. He puts the money by the word, loy signoiv. Don't steal. So if anybody opens up, we'll see the chumash. Okay. It was 50 ruble. He comes back a few minutes later. Yeah. And the 25 ruble are gone. And the other 25 are by the posseg. So, so Reb Zusha, he's the guy left 25. So Reb Zusha looks and he says, look, look how lowly I am relative to this person. When I got the 50 ruble, all I thought about was me. So I put it by the Pasek, Lois Signoif. This guy, when he got 50 ruble, he was already thinking about me. He put it by the Pasek, That's a certain mindset of a person. So when a person is living in that world, they don't have a bad day of their life. Because the definition of life is one reality, and they're experiencing that reality constantly. But... That's a particular paradigm. It's a way of looking at the world. But very often a person is living in a world where they're experiencing pain. And guilt that if I would have a moon, if I would believe in God, I shouldn't experience pain, is not justified. And the reason it's not justified is, because just like the experience of what happened came from God, the emotions that come with it also come from God. So accepting my reality doesn't mean that I don't feel pain. It means that the pain also has meaning. The pain also has purpose. You never have to run away from a natural emotion that you're having. Because that emotion that I'm having is a human emotion that's also given to me by God. So it's a very... It's a, it, it, that in itself is part of the experience... That Hashem, for whatever reason, I may understand it, usually I may, I don't understand it, wants me to have. And therefore I don't have to amputate it, I don't have to repress it, I don't have to deny it, I don't have to run from it. And equally important, I don't have to feel guilty for it. The guilt that so many people have, that they're experiencing pain, it means I have no faith. Why? It doesn't mean you don't have faith. It means you have very profound faith. And part of this faith is that this pain is somehow part of my journey. It's part of the meaning of my life. Do I know why? I probably don't know why. Will I figure out one day? Maybe yes, maybe not. But the question of why is not as relevant as the much more important question is. And that is what to do. What is the response that is necessary for me? In addition to the most basic response, and that is respecting the fact that the person that I'm experiencing this, whoever is experiencing it. Based on this, the Munkacherov explains something very profound. Rachel not only didn't have children, Rachel had the pain of not having children. Vayichar af Yaakov berachel. Yaakov gave her that pain of her feeling that her husband is angry at her because he felt that will be the pain that substitutes the pain of her not having children. So she'll be able to be blessed with a child. It reminds one of a, reminds me of a story. There was Rebarachal of Mezhebuzh, 
was one of the great Hasidic masters. Rebaruchel of Mezhabush was a grandson of the Baal Shem Tev. Shem Tev had a daughter named Adl. And she had a son named Rebaruchel of Mezhabush. He was a, uh, he has a sefer called Butzina de Nahaira. And he was a very well-known leader and teacher in his day. Rebaruchel of Mezhabush was also a sharp person. But he was a tzaddik, he was a holy man. One day, he came down to Shul before Mincha, and a Jew walked into Shul. And Rebaruchel started to embarrass this Jew in public, chastising him about different things of his life, to the point that everybody was shocked. Later, one of his close aides, or Hasidim, or disciples said, Rebbe, what happened? What happened? So he says to him, I was in Shul, waiting for Mincha, and this Jew comes into Shul. And I took a look at him, and I realized that his time is up. His soul finished its journey, and he's going to pass away soon. And I was thinking what I can do to stop that. So I decided to embarrass him, because when you embarrass somebody, it's a form of death. So he'll be yoitz of death with my embarrassment, and he'll be able to live. The Gemara says when you embarrass somebody, azul sumkiva the redness goes away, and they off, either they often blush or they become white or both of them, which represents a form of emotional death. And uh, what do they used to say? Sticks and stones can't. Uh, Break my bones, but words don't. But we all know it's not true, right? Sticks and stones can break your bones, and words can break your soul. Sometimes worse or equal. So Rabbi Rechel Mezhebush thought, I'll, I'll kill him through my words, so the angel of death won't have to kill him physically. That's why I did it. So uh, it's called, in, in Kabbalistic language, it's called Hamtakas Hadinim, sweetening the judgments. So the Jew says to Rabbi Rechel, but the Chazal tell us, You embarrass a Jew in public, you lose your Elam Haba. He says, No! <laughs> I lost my Elam Haba, but in the meantime, I saved the Jew. That's what the Rebbe of Mezheber says. So the Munkachah says, Vayicharaf, Yaakov Berachel. Yaakov got angry at Rachel. Because Yaakov understood this pain of his anger will be in lieu of the pain that for whatever reason she needed to endure by not having a child so she'll be able to be blessed with a child. That's his commentary and interpretation on the story. But I want to give you a, a fourth interpretation. And it really touches on the essence of faith and really the essence of the story of Yaakov. And according to this, Yaakov was not being insensitive to Rachel. On the contrary, he was actually trying to ease her agony and change her destiny. She says, I'm dead. And Yaakov gets upset, very upset. And he says, oh my God. On one level, it seems very insensitive and the Medrash does interpret it that way. But there was another, there's another level where this was not an impulsive outburst of rage or even a, a, a contemplative outburst of anger, but rather a profound gesture of love and caring. But for this, we must gaze much deeper into 
the text. And a little introduction is necessary. The portion of Ayetze, where this whole story is told, opens up with words that are maybe lonely words. Vayetze Yaakov mi Be'er Kharana. Yaakov left Be'er and he went to a place called Kharan. Be'er was the home of his parents, and Kharan is the home of his uncle. As I mentioned, Kharan we know today, it's identified today as Haran, which is a city in southern Turkey at the border of Iraq, Turkey, and Syria. Over there, Vayivga Bamakim, he encounters a place and he goes to sleep there. Vayalan Sham, he lodges the Kivah Hashemesh because the sun has set. He took some of the stones, he placed it at his head. Vayishka Vayakim, oh, he laid down there and he had a dream. That's the opening of Vayetze. For the first time in his life, not the last, but the first time in his life, Yaakov is alone. Never before has he been alone. Till now, he was in the bosom of his father, and even more in the bosom of his mother. He was mama's boy, right? Pun intended. And they nurtured him, they took care of him. He was, he grew up, Yoshev Eholim, in their tents, and in the tents of, of, of Torah. But now his parents sent him away from home. His brother craved to kill him. He was still single. He was on a journey to the unknown. He was going to his uncle, to the unknown. That was good. He was going to his uncle Lavan, where he would encounter some new challenges. He was running from challenge to challenge. And the way the Torah describes it is, he went to sleep there because the sun Set. When he lay down. This is like always in Chumash. It's not just a physical description that the sun set. It represents a mental state. Yaakov encountered the darkness of night. He encountered the uncertainties of life. The fragility of his future. That's why this scene is so important. Everybody goes to sleep at night. Why is that relevant to the story? But this night represented ushering in a new era. The sun has set for him. He was not sure what will happen when dawn will break. This is not my own interpretation into the psukim. The medrash, who's always filling in the gaps, as I said before, says so explicitly in the beginning of Ayatse. The medrash quotes the famous psalm, the famous chapter of Tehillim 121, and applies that psalm to Yaakov Avinu when he was leaving his father and mother's home and going to his uncle. Shir la'malois, esa'enai elaharim, me'ayin yavoy ezri, ezri me'im adinoi, oisir shemayim va'aretz, al yitn la'moit raglach, al yonam shemrecha, hinei la'yonam v'la'yishon shemay Yisrael, etc. According to the Medrash Rabbah, this is the psalm uttered or experienced by Yaakov Avinu during those moments. And he says, the Medrash says, Yaakov Avinu said, But remember, there's no Nikudos in the Tanakh. It can also be pronounced, I lift up my eyes to my parents. He yearns for his mother. He yearns for his father. I lift up my eyes, craving, yearning, pining. To those days when I went to sleep in my own bed, in my mother's and father's home. Not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally. I was embraced by them. And therefore he says, May Ayin Yavai Ezri. From where will my help come? This is a very interesting psalm because it starts with a question and then it concludes with an answer. Ezri Me'im Hashem Oyser Shemaim Varetz. 
My help will come from Hashem, who is the creator of heaven and earth. So what happens is, what is Yaakov questioning? Where will my help come from? Why now? Because now he's alone. He's not under the nurture and protection of Rivka, who's so who loved him so deeply, he's alone in the world, his parents set him off, sent him off, he has to face life by himself, he has no familial support. The Medrash continues and says, May Ayin Yavoy Ezri, May Ayin Yavoy Ezri could be translated, May Ayin Yavoy Ezri, from where will my Eliezer come? Ezri as in Eliezer, Eliezer is two words, Keli Azar, my God helped me. May I in Yahweh Ezri, where will I get my Eliezer? Where will I get my Azer, my assistance, my help? Not only was he alone, he didn't have any money or support for the journey. Where am I going to get my Eliezer? As the Medrash says, when Eliezer went to find a wife for Yitzchak, for Rivka, he had ten camels that went with him. As we discussed a few weeks ago in Parshas Chayesar, the whole story with the camels. He was loaded with abundant wealth. It says Avram gave him everything he owns. He wrote him a document that he could show this, this Bacharel's family. This is the good deal. Shtar Matananasan, they gave him a document with a gift, all of Avram's assets. assets. This is when Eliezer went to find a shidduch for my father Yitzchak. This was the financial situation. Now, it's the next generation. I'm also traveling to find a wife for myself. Yaakov was sent by Yitzchak and Rivka to find a wife for himself at his uncle's home. But he was broke. He was penniless. He was destitute. He would, he would say later, Ki makli of I crossed the Jordan only with my stick. He had nothing but a walking stick. Why indeed could Yitzchak not give him anything? So there's the famous tradition of our sages that he did give him. But Esav sent his son Eliphaz to go kill Yaakov on the road. And Eliphaz came to Yaakov and he couldn't, he didn't have the heart to kill his uncle because Eliphaz grew up in Yitzchak's lap. So he told Yaakov, I'm conflicted, you know, but in our family honoring your father is above everything, but I don't have the heart to kill you. So Yaakov gave him a whole shear in Gemara, and he said that the Gemara says, that if somebody is poor, it's like lifeless, or just take away my money, and you'll fulfill your father's obligation. And that's what Eliphaz did, and Yaakov was now broke, and Eliphaz got the money, and Yaakov remained alive, and the rest of his history, at least that's one interpretation why he was penniless, but he says, I only crossed the Jordan with my stick, and as a result of that, he says, may ayin Yavoy Ezri. And at this moment, he feels that he's at the verge of despair. The sun indeed has set in his life. Darkness engulfed him. Emotionally and financially, he left, he felt forlorn. He was a solitary man in a vast, mean, and indifferent universe. But then he catches himself. And I'm going to quote you now the fascinating words of the Medrash. Chazar Omar. He, he said to himself, Mani moivet sivri min bar yichas v'shalom, lesan am moivet sivri min bar yele, ezri meim Hashem. What? Will I give up hope and not believe anymore in my Creator? I will never give up hope. My salvation comes from Hashem, oisei shemayim v'aretz. What the Medrash is saying is, may I in Yahweh Ezra, he didn't just say, God will help me. First he said, where will my help come from? 
He felt that he's helpless. He was at the verge of surrendering. He was at the verge of despair. And then the Medrash says, he caught his head and says, Am I really losing all hope in my Creator? I'm not. I'm not losing hope in my Creator. I had a question, but now I have an answer. But now I ask a question. What does this mean? Did Yaakov really give up hope? Just because he was destitute and penniless, he fell into such despair. This is the man who would carry on the covenant of Avram and Yitzchak. Both went through very difficult situations. Did he suddenly forget that God exists? So he's penniless. So he has challenges. So he doesn't know what's going to be. He's alone in the world. He really forgot, and then he caught himself and said, wait, 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 I was taught that there's a God. What happened in Yaakov's mind at that moment? Also, his words seem very repetitious. He says, what? I'm going to give up. I'm going to give up hope for my Creator? No, I will not give up hope. He should have just said, I will never give up hope. He almost asks the question, what, will I give up hope? I will never give up hope. He could just say, I won't give up hope. Why the question and why the answer? So the Chidushi Harim, the first Gary Rebbe, was Rabbi Itcha Meir Alter. Rabbi Yitzchak Meir Alter was the first Gary Rebbe. He was born in 1799. He passed away in 1866. And in a sefer called Siach Sarfei Kodesh, on Parshas Vayetze, which collects and compiles teachings of some of the great Polish masters, including the Chidushi Harim. Chidushi Harim is Chidushi Harav Yitzchak Meir, Rabbi Itcha Meir of Ger, Rabbi Itcha Meir Alter. He gives a stunning explanation to this medrash. I would just venture to add that knowing the life story of the one who gave the interpretation, the first Gary Rebbe, the Kedush Harim, makes the explanation far, far more uh, poignant. And I think it's worthwhile to know this about the Kedush Harim. Reb Itcha Meir Alter, Reb Yitzchak Meir, was the founder and first Rebbe of the Ger dynasty, which at one time, before the war, counted more than 200,000 Hasidim. He was a child prodigy. His mother, Chayesara, was an orphan. She was raised by the Kajnitz Magit, and uh, he helped her son develop during his early years. He became a disciple of Reb Simcha Binim of Pshischa and Reb Menachem Mendel of Kotsk. And when the Kotsk Rebbe passed away, he became a Rebbe in the city of Gur, not far from Warsaw in Poland, and he's known as the Chidushi Harim, Rabbi Yitzchak Meir, or Rabbi Itcha Meir. But his personal life was filled with extraordinary tragedy. He had 13 children. All of them, besides one daughter, Esther, passed away during his lifetime. And uh, he had a son who we thought would succeed him, but he also passed away during his lifetime, and his son, whom he raised, his name was Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh became his successor, he's known as the Svasemes. Svasemes was the grandson of the Chidush Shorim, who was raised by his grandfather, because his father passed away at a young age. When uh, he finally uh, assumed leadership, after the death of the Kutzke Rebbe, he said these words, I'm not a Rebbe, I don't want money, I don't care for honor. All I want is to spend my years bringing the children of Israel, the Jewish people nearer to their father in heaven, and he became one of the great or greatest luminaries of Polish Jewry during those years, the first half of the 19th century. As I said, he passed away in 1866. Tafresh 
Chavav. He gives a stunning interpretation to this Medrash. And he says, when you read it literally, it looks like Yaakov gave up hope. And he says, I don't have parents, I don't have Eliezer, I don't have money, I don't have support, I am alone in the world, my life is over. And then he catches himself and he says, Am I giving up hope? No, I'm not giving up hope. The Chidush Harim says that there is a very profound message in the story. He says, what Yaakov was teaching us is that real hope comes when you give up on having hope. It's precisely when you realize that nobody can help you. When your vulnerability is completely exposed. When you're stripped from that last ounce of egotism. When you realize that you have no solutions, nobody to lean on, no defense mechanisms are going to work. You can't hide behind masks and uniforms. Everything that you held on to is lost. You feel like you're a shipwreck, literally, without a single plank of wood to hold on to. There's no way out. And you cry out, May I in Yovayezri, from where will my salvation come? That is precisely the moment when you can actually experience God in the most real and profound way. That's when you can really discover in your gut, Ezri Me'im Hashem Oisei Shamayim Va'aretz. To quote the Chidushi Harim, to quote the Chidushi Harim, Yaakov felt that he has nothing. And then the Medrash says, what did he do then? What did he do? So as we said before, he said to himself, what? I'm giving up hope? Says the Chidush Harim. The question he was asking is, where did I get this thought from? Where does a Yaakov Avinu, where did I get this thought from? That I have no bracelet, no jewelry, no money, unlike Eliezer, I have no parents here, and therefore I'm lost. Where did this thought come from? So he said to himself, Chas v'shalom. This thought didn't come because I don't have a relationship with God. This thought came because I have a relationship with God. But in order to experience the relationship with God, I have to discover that I have nothing else to rely on. That's why I had this thought. This was not a thought of despair and depression. This was the thought that allows me to experience a real relationship. When he feels like ayin, may ayin yavay ezri. I'm the ayin. I'm nothing. Then, from the very ayin, from that very nothingness, he can experience the profoundest, the profoundest salvation. He doesn't right away say ezri meim Hashem, just to say God will help me. He says you're not going to experience that level of help. Only when he feels that he has nothing. And then he realizes the reason he felt so, it's not because he doesn't believe in God. 
That's actually the moment he can experience a deal, real relationship. And he says, this is the gift he gave the Jewish people for all the generations. Sometimes our deepest spiritual experiences come when we least expect them. When we're closest to the spear, it's then that the masks that we're wearing are stripped away. We are at our point of maximum vulnerability. It's a feeling, it's very hard to describe in words, but if you've been there, you know that feeling. We have been stripped from everything. There's nothing left that I can hold on to. That's the moment when we're most fully open to God. And the moment that God is most fully open to us. Karav Hashem l'nishbirei leiv. God is close to the broken heart. The broken heart doesn't mean you have to take your heart and break it. It means the open heart. The heart that has openings inside of them that can allow infinity to come in. Real faith emerges when you have nothing left but but faith. I remember this vividly. It was two days, the next day or two days, after Abshalmar de Kharabashkin came out of prison when the president commuted his sentence of 27 years, Zeis Hanukkah, two years ago. And uh, there was a Sudas Haida in a home in Munsi, in somebody's home, Rab Shmuel, some one of his big supporters, trying to help him during his ordeal. So there was a, a humble Sudas Haida in the house for some close family and friends, and he invited me to come. So I was sitting there near the host. And near the lawyer, Rabashkin's lawyer, Gary Apfeld from California, Los Angeles, and near the Bala Simchir Shalom So Gary gets up to speak, the lawyer. And he says, now that you're out, I'll share with you the other side of the story. And that is that the court, the lawyers filed eight appeals, eight appeals to commute a sentence. Seven of them were rejected. The eighth one, the eighth one was rejected on Hanukkah. And after eight, you can't appeal anymore. And Gary said, I got it in the mail. It said, no, <laughs> rejected. And I decided, I'm not going to tell you. You're in prison. You still have another 20 years, 21 years. What should I tell you? That you should give up hope. Let you think that the eighth appeal is still in the process. A person needs hope. A person, tikva. You know, you need hope. And the apostle can hear me. Right, you can't lose your tikva of the tikva. Say no. The famous after about some the dry bones. So I decided I'm not going to tell this to you. <laughs> I'm not going to share it with you. The lawyers know it. We'll see. Who knows? Maybe we could still do something. But when we knew the eighth appeal is denied, that's it. There's nothing to do. McKenzie Gornerstam. After the Supreme Court's already, you went through all the channels. This is it. The court will not allow for any change. So Gary says, but look, Baruch Hashem, despite everything, you're here. He sits down. So Rabshalom Mardachai gets up. <laughs> says, now let me tell you the story. You thought I didn't know? <laughs> he thought that they only sent the letter to him. They sent the letter to prison too? He says, I knew. I knew that they denied. But Gary, his lawyer, never knew that Rabashkin knew that he was denied his last appeal. <laughs> Till that to the Saidah, he says, I knew. So Gary was stunned, really? And how did you deal with it? So I'll tell you how I dealt with it. The letter came to me, Zeus Hanukkah in the morning. When? 
I was in the middle of davening, and Hanukkah we say hello. Of course, he was davening alone in his cell, in Tfilin and Talas, and every day of Hanukkah you say hello. That's one of the institutions of the Chazal about Hanukkah. Halal v'hoidah. So I was standing in the middle of halal. As I was in the middle of halal, the warden comes in and he says, I have an important letter for you. So I open up the letter and it says, the eighth appeal denied. No more appeals welcome. This is the information Gary Opfeld, his lawyer, was trying to hold back from him. I said at that moment, a thought came into me, something I heard as a child from Rabbi Yisrael, in the name of Rabbi Yisrael of Rizhen. One of the great Hasidic masters was known as the Halika Rizhener, the Holy Rizhener, Rabbi Yisrael of Rizhen. And I remembered growing up with a Torah teaching of his. The Rizhener said in Tehillim chapter 13, the Pasik says, listen, Quite a few Adonas. David says, Adana, how long, Hashem, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I take counsel, I'll take advice in my soul with sorrow in my heart by day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? So the Rizhina says, the first two Ad-Anas are a question. The third Ad-Ana is not a question, it's an answer. Why? First, everyone learns the psukim. He's asking, till when, till when, till when? He says, no. He's giving an answer. The first is, How long will this continue? You're going to forget me about me forever. How long will you conceal my face from me? Now he gives an answer. You know how long? As long as I think I have my own etzes. My own advice of how to deal with the problem. As long as Ashish eats his benafshi, as long as I'm an expert, I'll do this, I'll live dach, I'll gain dach, that's how long I won't be able to experience you. Reb Shalom Ardechai said, I remember this word of version. And I said, Oh, Baruch Hashem, thank God the last appeal was denied. Nobody could say anymore that I should rely on nature. Because nature said, no, 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 no. Finally, I can deal directly with God. And he said, I said Halil with such a simcha. I started to dance throughout the rest of Halil after I was denied. Two, three hours later, same warden came in and said, your wife is waiting for you outside, you're free. Ad'ona ashis eitzos benafshi. And it's true in every aspect of life. People in recovery, for example, know very well. As long as they thought they have a solution to their problems. As long as they said, there's a way out. I'm in control. I'll figure it out. I'll squirrel my way through the issues. 
As long as people think they don't have to strip themselves completely from all their protective gear, they could not experience the miracle of recovery. Because recovery is a miracle. They don't allow Hashem in His full infinity into their lives. I'm still building walls and barriers. Only when you realize that you have nothing left. But that realization is a very deep realization. It can sometimes get, come from the greatest revelation, and sometimes it could come from the greatest challenge. It's not about a challenge. It can come in a great moment of great joy, but it's harder. Because when the, everybody is smiling at me, I feel like I have so much. But at that moment when I feel that I have nothing, there's no barriers, that's when you can touch God. When my imagination, my ego, even my trauma, my fears, everything I was using to manipulate the system of my life, even to myself, when it's all removed, and I'm just wallowing in what seems like an endless abyss, in that ayin, may ayin, in that ayin, in that place of nothingness, Yavoyazri, that's how the Balatanya explains it. He's not only asking, may ayin, from the ayin, Yavoyazri. That's where I can experience the light of the transcendent, the light of the infinite. And it's not just a magical idea. We can even appreciate it. Because as long as I'm stuck in my own paradigms, I'm not allowing myself to be aligned with that which comes from the place of infinity. It's getting blocked. But in that place of ayin, says the Chidush Shaharim, Yaakov can experience that full, full powerful identity and discovery of God. And that's the meaning. Chazal tells us Yaakov goes to sleep. And what else happens then? Yaakov tikein tfilas arvis. He was Masak and Mayrev, the Tefillah of Mayrev. We learn it out from those Pesukim. By Yivga, by Mokim, he encountered a place and he slept there. What does it mean? He taught to Jewish people how to daven Mayrev. What does it mean to daven Mayrev? How to find God in the night, in the thicket of darkness. This is his great legacy to his children. Precisely when you feel most alone. Precisely when you feel isolated. Precisely when you feel that you have nobody and nothing, that Hashem is with you, giving you the courage, the hope, and the strength to dream. That's exactly what he does. He dreams. Like the bird that feels the light of dawn even when it's still dark. Yaakov bequeathed to his children the capacity that even in the state when you want to, every fiber of your being says, May I in Yahweh Ezri, I have help from nowhere, I am completely downtrodden, I'm completely in the gutter, that's when I could fall in to God's embrace. Moshe Rabbeinu would repeat this in Vizoy Sabrach at the end of his life, he would say, is a very strange verse. Rabbi Nachman of Bresov says it means there are arms under the world. What does it mean there are arms under the world? It says there's two types of people. I'll describe them. You could raise your hand if anyone relates to you. There are people who feel sturdy on this planet. They walk and they feel that the earth is under them. You know, they just feel solid and grounded. 
He says there are people who feel they don't have a place on this planet. They're emotionally falling off the planet. So Moshe says, I want you to know, below the planet, below the world, even below the cosmos, so below earth, there are arms for those who fall off. So when you're falling off, you're falling off into somebody's embrace. But here's the paradox. The one who feels solid on the planet earth will never feel those arms. The one who feels like he or she is falling off, they can fall in to that embrace. And that's why Yaakov Avinu says, what? I will give up hope? I will never give up hope. He doesn't just give the answer, he also gives the question. Because he was perturbed about himself. Why am I having such thoughts? Why am I saying this? When I go to Yiddish Ingele, where does this come to a Jewish boy? He was upset at himself. But then he realized, no, this pain was not a tragedy. This pain was not, as I said before, proof that he doesn't have faith. By feeling there is no hope, he can experience real hope. As Yerushalayim said, when he discovered how bad it was, he could find God in that very experience. As long as he was just saying, yeah, it's all good, it's all good. In a funny way, in a counterintuitive way, he would never really be able to find God. He would be in a place of, of denial. And that you never find truth in a place of denial. But it's exactly in this place of complete nakedness and vulnerability. His body and soul lay beer that he could find the ayin, the ezri me'im Hashem. And this becomes his story next week. In Vayishlach it says, Vayivaser Yaakov Levadai. He's going to be alone again. And a man is going to wrestle with him until dawn break. He is alone in the thicket of night, wrestling with profound forces that want to defeat him. Who doesn't have these experiences of night when I'm left alone in the dark? When I have to deal with difficult demons, whatever they may be in the forms of of depression, grief, despair, angst, yearning, regret, emptiness, in your relationships with yourself, with spouses, children, siblings, family, other people. But Yaakov at that moment gets his name Yisrael. You have wrestled with God and with people and you have prevailed. He taught the Jews how to daven mayrif, tefillas arvis. The word tefillah means connection. Teufel is a connection. He learned the Jewish people, taught the Jewish people how to connect through mayrif, how to turn mayrif into a relationship, how to turn to God in the very moment when you feel that there is nothing left. This, says the Chidush Harim, was Yaakov's greatest legacy to the Jewish people. That at that moment, instead of falling into despair, they actually can experience arms that embrace them. It's probably what the Chidush Yehorim did himself. He was giving a commentary about himself. And it's probably one of the power, most powerful ideas about how the Jewish people not only survived after the Holocaust, but thrived. Many of you sitting in the room are testimony of that. He taught the Jews how to have moment, hope at moments when it was really hopeless. When, when you're on empty. To know that Yaakov wakes up from his sleep and what does he say? God is here even if I don't know it. Sometimes I can't wrap my brain around it. If I wrap my brain around it, it's not going to work. I can't figure this out. I don't have to figure it out. God's being here does not have to do with my knowledge. 
with how much I understand it. So Avram gave the Jewish people the courage to challenge the idols of the age. Yitzchak gave the Jewish people the capacity for self-sacrifice. Moshe taught the Jewish people to be passionate fighters for justice. Those are all the first stories of his life. A passionate fighter for justice against evil. What did Yaakov give the Jewish people? Yaakov gave the Jewish people the knowledge that precisely when you feel most alone, Hashem is still with you, giving you the courage to hope, the strength to dream, and the capacity to reinvent yourself and reinvent your relationships. Based on this introduction, let's come back to Yaakov and Rachel. And here we have to deal with the shortcomings of the English translation, not because the translators have any negative intentions, but simply the nature of translation. Every English translation is, Yaakov got angry at Rachel. They did the best they can. But it's not the real translation of the words. Just like when it says in Parsha Shmois, Vayichar Af Hashem Moshe, God got angry at Moshe and he said, I told you to go to Egypt, just go. It doesn't mean he got angry at Moshe. It actually means something else. And the Kotzke Rebbe says this clearly in the Sefer, as I mentioned earlier, Siach Sarfi Kaidish. He was the Rebbe of the Chidush Harim, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Morgenster. Passed away a few years before the Chidush Harim in the 1850s. The Kotzke Rebbe says, translate the words. Vayichar, in Yiddish they say, Vayichar af Hashem b'Moshe, the Ebersh tzadon had gebrent, had gebrent an kegin Moshe, which in English means his fury, his wrath, his ire, his anger, I think I gave enough adjectives, burnt against Moshe, meaning he was angry at him. So that's why the simple translations will be, God got angry at Moshe. Yaakov grew angry at Rachel, or Yaakov's anger burnt against Rachel. But he says, re- translate the words. Vayichar af Hashem b'Moshe. What does b'Moshe mean? <laughs> Inside of Moshe. Vayichar af Hashem b'Moshe means Hashem's anger started to burn inside of Moshe. Says the Kotzke Rebbe, Hashem couldn't convince Moshe to go back to Egypt. He says, I can't. He gave four excuses. Excuse number one, we all go to give those excuses. Excuse number one is, who am I? You know that one? In Yiddish it's verbenech, who am I? That's excuse number one. Excuse number two is even better. I don't know how to talk. I'm not a man of words. I can't open my mouth. I can't read a sentence. Then came the third excuse, pretty better even. Nobody's going to believe me. I'm going to be the mockery of the century. And then came the fourth classic excuse. Why don't you just send somebody else? Four excuses. What's Hashem's response? Anger. He gets angry at him. Okay, okay, I'm going. How is that going to help you? You appoint a leader through anger? How is that going to help you? Says the Kotzke Rebbe, you're translating wrong. Vayichar af Hashem b'Moshe. Hashem's anger, Hashem's pain of what the Jewish people were going through in Egypt started to burn b'Moshe, inside of Moshe. The moment it started to burn inside of Moshe, he didn't have to convince him anymore. When somebody 
if God forbid a mother has a child who's very ill, and she has to go speak to a certain individual who has some connection with a medicine that can perhaps help her child. Even if for the last 50 years you would always hear her give all four excuses. Number one, who am I? Number two, I'm not a person of words. Number three, I'm going to be ineffective. Number four, send somebody else. It will all fade into oblivion when her heart is thinking about one thing. I got to save this child. No boundaries left. The tallest wall she will climb. She will discover every word she needs because her soul is on fire. I once heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe a story about the Chofetz Chaim. And when he said it over, it was so emotional that the Chofetz Chaim, that before the war, there was a, they wanted to give out a gzera, a decree against Shechita in Poland. The Chofetz Chaim was in Poland, in Radin. So he sent a delegation of a person to speak. At that time it was the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister of Poland, one of the leaders of Poland, to speak about it. They came back to the Chavetz Chaim and said, no, what happens? They told the Chavetz Chaim that they couldn't speak to him. He said, why? Because there was supposed to be a translator from Yiddish to Polish. And the translator wasn't there. So they couldn't really communicate in a way that he understood. So they didn't, they didn't, they didn't communicate. Nothing happened. So the Lubavitcher was repeating the story. He said, how the Chavetz Chaim gefrekt? Did anybody faint? If somebody would have fainted, he would have understood without words. His passion started to burn in Moshe. God transplanted a piece of his pain of what the Jews are going through in Egypt into Moshe's heart. The moment Moshe felt that passion, he was in. He was in all the way. The fact that he couldn't speak, they might not believe it, it became irrelevant. Of course, it all had to be dealt with. But that, what, that, not, that didn't become relevant. You come back to this Pasuk here, it gives you perspective. Let's remember the Pasuk. Vayichar af Yaakov birachal. Yes, on the surface, Yaakov got angry at Rachel. Who do you think I am? What are you telling me about kids? I'm not God. Vayichar af Yaakov Rachel. Yaakov's passion, Yaakov's anger, Yaakov's deep emotion and experience started to burn in Rachel. When he told her three words, Vayoyme, when he says to her, Am I instead of God who beheld, who prevented you from having children? Yaakov was not detaching himself from Rachel. He was trying to convey a message to her, the greatest discovery of his own life. That discovery we spoke about years before when he was traveling from Beersheba to Charam. As long as you are relying on me, Rachel. You have a husband, Yaakov, and you're relying on me, you will not be helped. 
I am not God. No human being is God. Stop relying on man. Because when you rely on man, you can't truly rely on God. Only when you really, really rely on Hashem can He come through. I am a human being. I'm upset. I'm angry. I can't give you children. Don't confuse me or anybody else with Hashem. Only when you realize that I cannot help you will you be able to open up your own window to heaven. So Yaakov didn't get angry with Rachel. His passion, his anger began to burn within Rachel. Yaakov realized that he has to infuse Rachel with the passion with the conviction, with the belief that he himself has. He knew from his own life that his greatest moments of blessings, he knew that his greatest dreams, his deepest moments of awareness came when he surrendered everything to Hashem. When he left nothing behind. When he surrendered everything. When he reached the moment where there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing That's when he had his greatest moment of clarity. It was those moments when he thought nobody can help him and he was in the worst situation that he discovered everything. He discovered everything he needed, which is the creator of heaven and earth, when he discovered Hashem. Rachel, I can't give you children. Only Hashem could. When you come to me and ask me for children, you are depriving yourself. You're depriving yourself from the only one who can truly be here for you at this moment. And when I looked at the Targum Yonis and Benuzil, which is the oldest Aramaic translation of Chumash, Yonis and Benuzil was the Rebbe of Hillel and Rabbi Yechidah ben Zakkai. And I see he writes, Uskif Rugza de Yaakov Berachel. And Yaakov's passion or anger was intensified in Rachel. Va'amar, and he says, Instead of asking me, ask Hashem. It's from Him who children come from. And it's He who prevented from you fertility. The Targum Yonason fascinatingly puts in these words, not just, am I God who took away children from you? He's actually instructing her. And now you see what happens. A few verses later. This is the beginning of 30, a few 22 verses later, 21 verses later. It says, Hashem remembered Rachel, Vayishma Eileha Eleikim. Eileha. What's Vayishma Eileha Eleikim? It's a very unusual expression. He listened to her. Vayifta So the Ramban says, he listened to her. Rachel got the message. Vayishma Eileha Eleikim. She turned directly to Hashem. She had a child. He opened her womb. That's why 21 verses later it says, He remembered her, Vayishma Eleha. Rachel understood it. Rachel appreciated it. Rachel got what her husband Yaakov was teaching her. According to this reading, he's not being insensitive. He didn't suddenly forget his love to Rachel. He didn't suddenly forget his empathy to Rachel. On the contrary, he was sharing with Rachel his deepest conviction, that moment of clarity that he received years ago and that Rachel could now receive because of what she was going through. He experienced it when he left everybody behind and he felt beer and barren. And now he will give it to her when she feels she has nothing 
And in fact, she uses the same word, ayin. V'im ayin, meisa anoichi. I'm dead. I'm dead. I have nothing. Ayin means without children. Ayin means nothing. Without it, with this nothingness, I'm dead. And in that sense, the Chidush Harim says, Yaakov gave a gift to every, for every Jew for all of the generations. We're children of Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu is <coughs> the iconoclast, the one who breaks all the idols. Yitzchak, the child who's almost sacrificed. But then there's Yaakov's gift that he gives to the Jewish people. And that is anyone sitting in this room or anyone in the world. Sometimes you look at life, you planned it to go a certain way, but it didn't go that way. You look at a certain struggle you're having with yourself or with somebody who's very close to you. And that struggle is often so deep. And you often just break down sobbing, wallowing in tears, in pain, in grief. It often comes with so much remorse and with so much guilt and with so much regret. And it's at that moment that Yaakov gave a gift to his, child, to his children forever. It's nighttime. There is uncertainty. There is darkness. I'm not sure where to go. I don't have that support system for this. I feel alone in the world. I don't have the Eliezer, nor do I have my parents. And all I can feel is that sense of ayin. And it's at that moment that in his complete and maximum vulnerability, he was so vulnerable because there was nothing left to hold on. And that's the moment, Vayivga Bamakim where he can say, He falls in to God's infinite, loving embrace, into Hashem's infinite hug. It's not an embrace he can always understand. He or she may not know exactly how it's going to work out, how it's going to develop. That's part of the surrender. But he or she feels a courage and a happiness and a joy, and a conviction. When he feels there is nothing left, at that moment, everything opens up for him. That's one of the greatest gifts our people have had, and that's when he has a vision. And what's the vision? He dreams of a ladder. And the ladder is standing on earth, and it reaches heaven. At that moment, he discovers a ladder that can take this person, can take Yaakov, and can take us from earth from the lowest places to the highest places. And he says, Hashem is here, even if I don't know it. And that's why years later, 20 years later, he's going to wrestle with an angel at night. And his name will become Yisrael, Sarkel, Kisarisim, Elikim, Ve'emanoshim, Vatoichal. Yaakov didn't always have peace, but he turned his loneliness into a vision of a ladder connecting heaven and earth. When you can take your loneliness and turn it into a vision of a ladder, a ladder that connects the lowest and the highest, where you can find Hashem in the midst of that danger. He, you learn from Yaakov how to rescue hope from despair, and how to keep on going despite his dread from Esau, and despite his dread 
from Lavan. There was a Jewish singer who died a few years ago, Canada. His Jewish name was Eliezer Hakoyen. And he once wrote, he said, when I was young, I can't say verbatim, but uh, something of the nature. When I was young, I used to worship perfection. He says, not anymore. Now, whenever I look at things, I always search for the cracks. I always search for the imperfections. I search for the cracks. Because I know there's a crack in everything. And I know that that's how the light gets in. It's a profound statement. It's the cracks that allow the light to come in. The broken heart lets in the light of God. And it becomes the gate of heaven. Or to quote Yaakov, In that sense, his moments of night become his gate and our gate to heaven. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.